Well, I'm glad you're here today. We are jumping back into our series on the book of 1 Corinthians. As you remember, we started this last summer and have worked our way through the seventh chapter. We took a little break for Christmas, did a Christmas series, and now we're jumping back in to this chapter. Now, this is a chapter that I have, as I've seen other pastors and other churches, that they either skip or they go through really, really fast because they don't want to talk about these things. But we're going to talk about them today. Now, just as a reminder, this is Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. It's actually labeled 1 Corinthians because we don't have his first letter. And so 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter. 2 Corinthians is actually his third letter. And he's writing this letter in response to some of the questions that the church at Corinth had. And plus, he had some things he needed to talk to them about that he had heard about them. And so he's writing specifically to answer some of these questions and then correct them on other things that they weren't questioning. Now, Keep in mind also that these are all first-generation Christians, all right? Their moms and dads didn't know, grow up knowing Jesus. They didn't grow up uh, reading the Old Testament. In fact, at this point, most of them are not previously Jews, so they're not even familiar with the morality and the, the stories of the Old Testament. They aren't even really familiar with the Old Testament God, who is our God, okay? These are pagan converts, They come with virtually a blank slate in their spiritual lives. They come from a Roman culture of sexual deviance and godlessness. Now today in chapter 7, Paul's going to be answering some questions about sex and marriage. Now, a little disclaimer here. If you have small children here, we're not going to be very explicit about things. But if this is not a subject you want to talk to them about, it might be best to move them to the children's ministry now. Because we are going to be biblical. We aren't going to just move through things quickly just to get them done. We're going to talk about things and see what God wants to teach us today from these uh, answers that Paul is giving uh, the church in Corinth. That, of course, applies to us. Don't forget that in the very first chapter, he mentioned that this was not only a letter to the church in Corinth, but the churches in Corinth, which means that it was a uh, letter that is normative uh, to to all churches everywhere uh, all the time. So let's understand a little bit more about the culture uh, in the Corinthian church or there in Corinth. Uh, Rome, it was basically a, a Roman-governed uh, uh, area, and they had no uniform marriage laws. All right? In fact, many of these Christians were probably slaves. And if they were slaves, even though they were new Christian converts, uh, marriage didn't even exist for them. There was no such thing. A master could allow uh, people to live together, and in fact, he could pair them up. Uh, as slaves without any kind of ceremony, and he could end the relationship just as quickly. He could just decide at the end of uh, a certain period of time that he was going to, you know, uh, sell one of them, and off they go. Um, This would be kind of similar as far as a relationship uh, to uh, couples living together in our culture. In other words, uh, couples that are living together that have uh, virtually uh, no commitment to one another, really. Uh, they may say that they do, but they don't really. And they can pretty much leave anytime they want to uh, without any strings attached. Now, common people in this culture, uh, they basically had a, a situation where if they lived together for a year, that made them marry. So it was very like, much like our common law. So here in the United States, if you live with somebody for seven years, you are common law married at that point, and they did that basically after a year. There was marriage by sale. Uh, so if a father uh, wanted to uh, as, uh, sell his daughter and, and as part of a dowry and, and she marries this wealthy man, he could actually uh, make a deal for her uh, to sell her off. Uh, 
But the noble and the elite, they did have a ceremony that was actually very much like our marriage ceremony today. They would join hands. They would say vows to one another. Uh, They prayed to Jupiter. Uh, They had actually rings. And in ancient Roman literature, uh, they actually talk about how they uh, cut up cadavers and discovered that there was a nerve running from the uh, third finger to the heart. And that's why they put, that's why we put our rings on our third finger uh, today. Uh, They uh, also had flowers. Uh, The woman usually wore a veil and they had cake, which is my favorite part of a wedding ceremony. Okay. And they had real icing, not that Cool Whip stuff. By the way, don't buy that stuff for your wedding. It's just terrible, all right? And real icing, all right? So guess where our marriage ceremonies come from today? Mostly Roman culture. Now, changing of, of partners was quite common, along with immorality. Uh, wives in many of the uh, nobles' homes were for cooking and cleaning, and they had concubines for sex. There was adultery, fornication, prostitution, sexual depravity everywhere. Marriage in Paul's day was a complete disaster. Not too much different than our culture, unfortunately. Now, these new Christians were asking the question, okay, now I've committed my life to Christ. Now I've, I've seen the error of my ways. I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I can't do anything to fix my sin. I, I know Jesus died on the cross to save me and to, to pay for my sins, so I'm putting my trust in him. I'm putting my faith and trust in him. I'm giving my life to him, and I want to live the rest of my life for him. Now what do I do? What now? I've had all these relationships, or I've moved from relationship to relationship. I'm now in a relationship. I'm not in a relationship. What do I do now that I'm a Christian? In fact, some people were saying, because of all the sexual depravity around them, that there should be no physical relationships at all, even in the bonds of marriage, because most of the sexual conduct that they witnessed was evil. So wouldn't it just stand to reason that we should just stop having any sexual contact at all, even inside marriage, uh, or any other circumstance, if we want to be holy, because of all this depravity going on? So those were all the questions that they were having, and Paul uh, is going to fix this for him. He's going to give him some instruction that I think will be very beneficial to them and uh, to us likewise. Now, I want to clear up one thing in this passage because sometimes uh, people read this passage, and I think it's one of the reasons why people um, avoid it sometimes, is uh, there's four verses where Paul says something very interesting, and, and it seems like it seems like he's saying, Jesus' words are on this level, but my words are only on this level. And I want to I fix that for you before we read the passage, okay? In verse 10, he says, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. He's basically uh, quoting what Jesus has already stated. Then in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. He's not saying that it's less significant. He's simply saying, I'm not quoting something that Jesus actually said. I'm adding something to it. I'm not contradicting it. I'm simply building on it. Then in verse 25, he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. The apostle Paul knew he was an apostle. He defended that on several accounts in several letters. And he knew that what he was speaking was from God. And then in the last verse, verse 40, which we're not going to get to today, but I wanted you to see it in this context. He says, and I think that I too have the spirit of God. So what he's saying is, listen, sometimes in this passage, I'm going to quote what Jesus said and give you this baseline. But I'm going to add on to it. I'm going to build on it. I'm going to add some other things to it that don't contradict it. They don't uh, negate it. 
They simply add on some specifics to it, but I want you to know they're all inspired. They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so I don't want you to read this and go, well, which, which parts are important and which parts aren't? Which are just Paul's opinions that we don't have to obey and which parts are things that Jesus said that we do have to? No. They're all inspired by God. They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe that the entire uh, Bible is inspired by God. And there's not a, a, a quote from Jesus is not at a higher level than a quote from Paul. They're all inspired by the same God. And so we look at all of them uh, with the same authority for our lives. Okay, I just want to clear that up before there's confusion as we read it. And you think, oh, I don't have to do that stuff. It's just Paul's opinion. Paul's opinion matters, all right? Especially when he's writing uh, these uh, passages, these letters that are going to churches that are going to become normative for the church. So let's read uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. If you remember, uh, before we did the break, we took 17 and some following verses there because they kind of we can kind of talk about them alone. We're going to talk about this part of uh, chapter 7 and then the last third of chapter 7 next week because we couldn't really break those two up. They kind of go together. And so today we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Here's what God's word says. It says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So I've got eight things that Paul's going to talk about here, eight uh, basically principles about uh, sex and marriage that he wants us to see, and we'll start with this one. Celibacy is a godly and acceptable choice. Look back at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they were saying, hey, it's just that, this is the end of the story. This is just, in fact, you see he's quoted that from them. He's saying, listen, what you said is true. It is good. Uh, it is good if you can stay single to stay single. He's agreeing that having no sexual contact is good and acceptable. It is a perfectly reasonable choice. By the way, 
Good does not mean better or superior here. It only means godly and acceptable. In other words, it's an, it's an acceptable thing. It's a good thing. It's not, he's not saying it's the greatest thing. It's the best thing. He'll get to that later. But he's saying, listen, it's a good, it's a good thing. If you want to stay celibate and single your whole life, great. If you want to do that, good for you. Nothing wrong with that. Rock on. But then he goes on to say, marriage is also a godly choice, which minimizes sexual temptations. Let's look back at verse 2. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, which they are surrounded by, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So what he says here is, listen, it'd be great if all of us could be celibate and, and, and just godly and just be focused on God. That'd be awesome if we could do that. But since most of us have a sexual appetite that is strong, we would probably struggle with that idea and the practice of celibacy. He's saying, listen, I recognize I'm kind of, you know, I'm the exception to the rule. The rule is most of us couldn't live that way our whole lives. Therefore, God has provided marriage as a godly and healthy construct by which to please our sexual desires. This is one of the six biblical reasons for marriage. It's not, it's not just a, an add-on. It's not just, hey, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a benefit. It really doesn't have any purpose. It's just a, a little benefit on the side. No. It's one of the six reasons. In fact, uh, very quickly, uh, this is all bonus round, all right? There are six biblical reasons for marriage in the Bible, six biblical reasons. Procreation in Genesis 1.28. Pleasure, Hebrews chapter 13. Purity, right here in this passage. Provision, uh, you take a wife to protect her and provide as Christ does in Ephesians 5. Partnership, it's not good for man to be alone in Genesis. And then uh, as a picture of Christ and the church uh, back in Ephesians 5. So there are several purposes uh, for marriage. It's not just procreation. Uh, some uh, organized religious groups would tell you the main and only reason uh, for marriage is so we can procreate. We can continue to make more people like us. And that's the only reason. That's not true. Okay? Uh, sexual pleasure is something that creates oneness in a relationship and, and it's part of uh, the reason God created marriage. He's also instructing them right here on the biblical model for marriage. There's one biblical model for marriage. I don't care what the culture says. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. I don't care what the church down the street says. He says right here in this verse, there is one particular model for marriage, and that is one man with one woman. Not polygamy, not polyamory, not any of the other 43 choices the Facebook offers, okay? God has provided a healthy and godly choice by which to have sexual relationships, and it's inside the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman until death separates them, period. Anything outside that model is ungodly. It's unhealthy, it's displeasing to God. But he has given us this one model to fit in. He's saying, listen, so if you want to be single all your life and be celibate, good for you, man. That's, that's awesome if you can do that. But if you are like, no, I don't think so, then you need to get married. And, and then you need to just have that kind of relationship in your marriage. That's where you'll get fulfilled, not somewhere else. Then he goes on to say, that depriving one another introduces temptations back into the marriage. Look at verses 3 through 5. 
He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now here Paul makes some really strong statements. He says, listen, don't deprive sexual enjoyment from each other inside the marriage. He's saying, listen, be a selfless in your marriage. Don't don't go into your marriage uh, thinking in yourself, what can I get from it? It's what can I give to it? It's, It's selflessness, not selfishness. But then he goes on to say that even our bodies are owned by our partners in marriage. Now that is a pretty... Uh, phenomenal statement. Now, we in our uh, American culture, we have this thing about our individual rights. I have rights about this. I have rights about this. Listen, folks, when you became a Christian, you gave up your rights. Done. Okay? And I'm not saying to lay down for some political thing that's going to take away all of our political rights. All I'm saying is, listen, when it comes to rights, we gave up all of our rights when we received Christ as our Savior. Because now, the rights that we have are what he wants us to do. We've given up what we want in exchange for what he wants. And being in a marriage is a little bit like that. It's giving up what you want or what you desire for what your partner wants and desires. He says you have absolute rights to each other's bodies inside marriage. This provides a lot of additional questions, I'm sure, about Frequency, and it's amazing how God never matches two people up that are exactly, have the same exact appetite for this, you know. It just never, I don't know, I've never met anybody. Well, they probably wouldn't come for counseling if they had the same. That's probably why I haven't met them, Uh, you know. uh, But here's the bottom line, okay. We don't want to go into all the detail of that, but here's the bottom line. Both parties should be fully satisfied within the marriage. Both parties should be fully satisfied within the marriage. Now, here's your homework. We're not done yet, but here's your homework. Have a frank conversation. If you're married today, have a frank conversation with your spouse this week and just ask the question, are you fully satisfied in our relationship? And then be quiet and listen. And guys, this is your chance to be a leader. You initiate the conversation and talk half as much as you listen. Okay? Both parties should be fully satisfied within the marriage. They should only abstain from physical intimacy for a time due to a focused time of prayer. Like fasting. I'm going to give up food for these three days because I'm praying over this really important thing that's really you know, on my heart and my mind and it's, it's constantly, I'm just going to give up food for three days and I'm going to pray this. He's saying, listen, if you want to give up sex for a while inside your marriage, do the same. Listen, we're going to agree uh, that we're going to not do this for three days because we're going to, you know, you know, really focus our time in prayer and, and this thing that's really concerning us, da 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 And then, but Paul says, first of all, only do that when it's a mutual agreement, not, uh, sorry, honey, I'm praying for the next five months. I'm, <laughs> okay, not, no, no, nothing like, no, a mutual agreement. When we decide together and we agree mutually that we're going to stop doing this for a while because we're going to focus our time on the Lord, great. But what does he say right after that? But when you're done with that, Come back together. Get it going again, all right? Don't, don't just let it go on forever. 
only done by mutual agreement. He says, because if you don't have a healthy and fulfilling physical intimacy, folks, in marriage, we reintroduce all of the sexual temptations that were there when we were single. He says, listen, you're inviting Satan back in. So, so if you can be celibate and not think about sex the rest of your life, and you can be celibate and single, great, awesome. But if you can't, if you can't control yourself because of your desires, get married. But what he's saying is, listen, but you know what? If this breaks down and, and physical intimacy stops and you deprive one another, you know what happens? You're right back where you started. You're right back here with all these temptations and things that can't be fulfilled. You're inviting Satan into your marriage. It's very unhealthy, both relationally and spiritually. It's kind of like if an alcoholic said, hey, I'm, I'm giving up alcohol, I'm not going to drink anymore, but I'm going to go and, and hang around my buddies in the bar all day long. Well, this is not going to work. It's not going to work. And having a couple experience the kind of oneness that they're supposed to experience by in the midst of depriving one another physically, it just can't happen, folks. If you're in a marriage, you should be experiencing physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual oneness. And if you're not, those are marriages on the path to problems and maybe eventually destruction. Now, you may think, well, this is just one area of life. Yeah, it is. But it's one of the three big reasons people get divorced. Do you know that? Money, sex, and kids. Three big reasons that people get divorced. We have money fights all the time. We can't control our money. We're in debt. We're up to here. We, we just have all kinds of money problems. They bicker and fight until they finally say we're done. This particular topic. And then we can't get along with our kids. We, we want to parent our kids two different, completely different ways. We fight about it all the time, and they eventually break up. It's a big deal. Paul knows it's a big deal. And so he's saying, listen, folks, don't deprive one another because that introduces all of the temptations that you got married to avoid, for one of the reasons. You're, you're inviting those back into your life. Okay? He goes on to say that singleness or celibacy is a gift. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as my, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Here, Paul is acknowledging that he's single, but he also realizes that not everybody else can be. Not everybody, this is a gift. He says, listen, this is a gift that I can do this. It's a gift from God. Now, Paul was obviously married at one time because he was previously in the Sanhedrin. You can't be in the Sanhedrin without being married. So we know for a fact that Paul was married, but we have no record at all of what happened to his wife. We don't know. We know he's not married now, and he's probably, I mean, you know, if I were betting on the Chiefs, I'd bet on the fact that he's probably a widower, okay? He's probably a widower. He's saying, listen, not everybody can remain single, celibate, and untempted like I can, but I can. And if you can, listen, accept it as a wonderful gift, now, we're going to talk next week. The last third of chapter 7 talks about why singleness is such a wonderful gift. So we'll talk about why next week. But he's saying, listen, if you, want, if you feel like you can do this and it's right for you and it's good for you and you aren't overcome by all these passions, awesome. You need to see it as a gift. Paul goes on to say that these principles apply to both the divorced and widows. 
These are not just rules and, and, and principles that apply to the never marrieds. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. He says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this word unmarried in English is, is kind of overly broad, okay? Uh, because if you use the word uh, unmarried, that could mean never married, it could mean divorced, and it could mean widowed. Because uh, all, all three of those are currently unmarried, three groups of people. Now, the Greek word here is uh, agamos, and it's only used four times in the entire New Testament, and all four of them appear right in this chapter. So all four times the Bible uses this word, unmarried, it's right in this chapter. So Paul helps us by the context around it to understand what it means. In verse 34, and we're going to see that next week, Paul makes it clear that the unmarried are separate and different from the never-marrieds. He said, to the unmarried and to the virgins, I say this. So we know that they're two different groups of people. Here in this passage, he's just said, the unmarried and the widows. So we know that they're two different groups of people. They aren't, they aren't the same. So he's saying, listen, there are three groups of unmarried people. There are never-been-marrieds, uh, the virgins in, 34, in verse 34, the virgins or unmarried or um, never-marrieds. There is the widowed that he's talking about right here and the unmarrieds. That's the third term that he uses in this passage. And the only thing that it can mean is divorced. So he's talking about here are people who are divorced and the widows. He's saying, so here's a saying, out of the two good godly choices, staying single or remarrying, singleness is actually better. And again, we'll talk about that next week of why it is better if you can do that. But he says, if you can't harness your sexual drive and temptation, it's better to get remarried than to burn with passion. It's better to get married. In fact, in another passage, uh, Paul makes a distinction between a younger widows and older widows. And he says, older widows, you know, if you can you know, stay unmarried and serve the church and serve the kingdom and da-da-da-da. And to the young widows, he goes, look, yeah, no, you're too young. Get, get, get remarried. Because I know you got some things that you want to do in life and you want from life that, you know, you, you just can't stay single to do. Now, some biblical translations, I want to make mention of this. Some biblical translations here only use the word burn. And so when I was a child uh, and I heard this passage preached, uh, it is better to marry than to burn, to burn in hell, is what they told you. Hey, it's better to get married than to burn in hell. It's like, if you don't get married, you're going to burn in hell. So it's like, everybody wants to get married, right? Okay, that's not what it's saying here. It's not saying that. It's better to, to marry than to burn with passions all the time and eventually probably give in to them. So if you are divorced or widowed in this room, it would be best to stay single if you can. But it's better to get married again than to live in promiscuity. Now, Paul had been married, and now he's single, and he's saying, listen, singleness is better, trust me. Uh, but for him, it was a gift for him. But he's saying, listen, if you are divorced or widowed, it's better to, to remarry than to burn with passion. Now, he's talked... To the, to the singles now. Now he switches gears and talks to the married. And he says to them, if married, do not divorce. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. 
and the husband should not divorce his wife. Here Paul repeats the Lord's primary directive concerning marriage, and it's stay married. That's the prime directive, stay married. In fact, don't even separate unless there is a very, very valid reason. And then that separation is only for a period of time and for the purpose that reconciliation can eventually happen. Now think about what was happening here, okay? One spouse gets saved and now is married to an unbeliever with a totally different view of life, a totally different worldview, a totally different uh, view of uh, morality. And the Christians were asking, hey, you know, now that I know Christ, you know, should I divorce my partner? And Paul's saying, absolutely not. Divorce is never the desired outcome. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to say here. It is never God's perfect will that people divorce. It may be in his permissive will where he allows it to happen, but it's never what he desires. Wait a minute, Michael. What what about a situation where the woman and, and her children are being terribly abused? What if they're being beaten? Are you saying that she should stay right in there and just take it? No, of course not. Not saying that. That would be a, a, a primary reason to separate. But God's perfect will would be, after that separation, the church that she goes to steps in, leads her husband to Christ, he gets saved, repents of his sins, stops abusing his wife and kids, they get married, they have a help, healthy and happy marriage. That's God's will. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't always heed to God's will and God's desires for our life. And so I want everybody to understand, uh, we, do not, we are not suggesting uh, that if a, a woman or a man is being uh, abused in their marriage, that they just stay in there and take it. No. No. But when they separate, they do that for the purpose of, if at all possible, reconciling to their partner. Remember, Paul just said that this is what Jesus taught. Now he's going to expound on that. And before I leave this point, let me say this. Occasionally you will hear either a televangelist or some TV preacher or you know, one of those guys who's got books and TV shows and all that kind of stuff. You'll hear one of them say, hey, I just want to announce to everybody that I'm divorcing my wife because God's just shown me that I can really minister in a greater way by marrying this other woman. That's somebody you should run from as far and as quick as you can. Okay, God never directs that. God never leads anybody to do that. That person is a heretic, and you need to stay away from them. If any man would, in the name of the Lord, turn away from his wife and choose another woman simply because he thinks God has uh, called him or told him to do that, uh, that's just hogwash. That is contrary to God's word, and you need to get away from them as quickly as you can. In fact, if you have their books, go home and throw them in the fireplace tonight. All right? Okay, so let's continue on. Here Paul says, a believer should remain married to an unbeliever if the unbeliever wishes to stay. So now he said, remember he said, hey, listen, Jesus said don't divorce. Now now I'm going to expound on that a little bit. I'm going to explain that a little bit. I'm going to add on to that a little bit. I'm not going to negate it. I'm not not going to, you know, uh, say something completely different, but I want to build on it. And look what he says in verses 12 through 14. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, Paul says here, under the inspiration from the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer and your spouse wishes to stay married, stay married. So these people who are asking him these questions, hey, listen, I got saved and, and, and gave my life to Jesus and my whole you know, thinking is changing, my heart is changing, uh, what I do is changing, I'm not going to the places I used to go with her um, and she's still lost and, and I don't you know, see any promise that she's going to ever know Christ. Should I just get rid of her? He's saying no. If she, if she says, hey, listen, I'll stay with you, then, then stay with her. Don't send her away. Stay married. Don't initiate leaving just because they're not a Christian. Yet. By the way, there have been several ladies that have come to our church through the years, all of those 13 years, and they've said, hey, I just want you to know I've been coming here for a while. I love this church. I'm going to make it my church, and uh, I, I'm going to, I want to get involved. I want to serve here. I want to be a, a full-fledged, you know, card-carrying member of the church. But uh, listen, you'll never see my husband. I, I, just want to, I just want to tell you now, he's not a believer. He's not coming He's not going to have anything to do with the church. I, I, we're just here. I'm, I'm here, but you'll never see him. Well, I can tell you that several of those men have been introduced to us, have begun coming, have received Christ as their Savior. I've baptized some of them. They've been discipled, and now they're serving in our church, including one of our deacons. And so if that woman who was a Christian would have sent her husband away, who knows what would have happened. But don't initiate leaving just because they're not a Christian yet. Then there's this confusing line about the unbeliever being holy because of the, the believer. What does that mean? Okay, first of all, it doesn't apply to a person's salvation. It has nothing to do with a person's salvation at all. There is no forgiveness of sins by proxy in the Bible. You can't forgive somebody else's sins. Uh, nobody else can forgive yours. Uh, only Jesus can forgive our sins, and he can only do it at, at a person's uh, personal acceptance of his offering of forgiveness. So it's not saying uh, that, hey, you, you know, if you're a Christian, then your spouse and your kids are automatically saved too. No, he's not saying that at all. He says, listen, you should stay in the marriage because you become the sanctifying instrument of God's blessings on your entire family. Without you, there's no godly influence. When, when have a mom and dad raising children who are just as far from God as they are ever had any kind of internal influence or direction in their family? They don't. They don't know to. They aren't connected to Christ. But when you introduce even one redeemed person into the family, they become a godly influence on the entire family. The new believers in Corinth were asking, so now that I'm married to an unbeliever, do they defile my marriage? Should I divorce them and get rid of them because they defile us because they're not, we're not both Christians? Paul's saying, no, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. Because you're saved, you become the godly influence that may lead the rest to Christ. And if you pull away and you, you exit, where does that leave them? You are the source of God's blessing. And the rest are just kind of collaterally blessed. You, you know, you talk about collateral damage, you know, there's collateral blessing. 
And what he's saying here is, listen, don't leave your family. Stay with your family because as long as you're in that family, your spouse and your kids get collaterally blessed because God's going to pour his blessings on you as his child. They're just going to get the overflow of that. They're going to get the blessing of that. So don't leave them. If, they're, if the unsaved person is willing to stay, let them stay. But if the unbeliever wishes to leave, let them go. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Listen, if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever doesn't like the change they see in their partner, they say, listen, I don't want any part of this Jesus stuff. I don't, want, I don't want to be around you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. If you're going down that path, I don't want anything to do with this. Right here, the Bible says the believer should let them leave without a fight. Just let them go. And if this happens, the believer is no longer responsible. They're no, no longer bound to their spouse. Their vows are broken. Uh, this is very a similar language to the language in Romans chapter 7 where Paul says if your spouse dies, you're no longer uh, obligated in any way to your spouse. You're now unmarried. You're now a, a widow. You can remarry if you choose. But wait a minute. I, I need to stay married and just nag them into the kingdom, don't I? I mean, I, need to, I, I can't let them go. What if I let them, if they want to leave and, they're, and they want to do their own thing, shouldn't I just hang on with all my might? I'll just refuse to divorce them, and I'll, I'll make them stay married until they give in. Right? By the way, it was only uh, half a century ago that the United States introduced uh, no-fault divorce. Uh, California was the first state to introduce it. It was signed by President Reagan when he was governor there, and he said it was the biggest mistake of his entire political career to sign the law into effect that said you can divorce without showing cause because the divorce rate skyrocketed. But here Paul says, listen, don't, don't fight them to the death. If they want to go, just let them go. He says peace is better than staying married to someone who doesn't want to be married to you. It is better to have peace than to fight them to stay. And I'm not saying don't fight for your marriage. Yes, definitely fight for your marriage. If they're both wanting to work it out, and we're not talking about, uh, we're not talking about uh, two believers who are banging heads and can't get along, you stay married, okay? Sorry. But he's saying, hey, listen, if a believer is married to an unbeliever who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't want Jesus, who, who wants to get out because you know Jesus, he's saying, listen, just have peace and let them go. It's not justification for an easy divorce. Okay, God hates divorce. He doesn't hate the divorced, but he hates the act of divorce. Paul adds, how do you know if you stay married, will you ever win them? That's what he's saying when they're asking the question, shouldn't I just stay in there and fight to the death to make them until they, I'm just going to nag them into the kingdom. And, and Paul's going, look, how do you know if that's ever going to happen? Husband, how do you know if you're ever going to win your wife? Wife, how do you know if you're ever going to win your husband? You don't. So to be at war with them over the kingdom for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and when they just, they just want to leave, don't, don't, don't do that. Just let them go. 
And by the way, as a Christian, you're no longer under obligation to them. If they then go, fine, you are free to do as you please when it comes to marrying or remarrying. Folks, marriage is not an evangelistic strategy, okay? It's just not. It may be an evangelistic context, but it's not a strategy. So don't use it that way. Now, on December 1st, now, when it gets through with all these, these verses, we go back to the passage that we looked at on December 1st. And if you want to look at this middle section of chapter 7, you can go back and read it on December 1st. But the next few verses basically say that in order to be a good Christian, you can remain in the marital status that you are currently in. And that's what, when he's saying, hey, do all these things, he's saying, listen, when you come to know Christ as your Savior, wherever you're at, if you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. You know, whatever, stay where you are. Because becoming a Christian does not insinuate that you need to change your marital status simply because you have become a Christian. And that sounds really simple to us, but they didn't know this. But he says, but if you are a Christian, live in the relationships that that are godly and Christ-like. So here's the bottom line. If you're married, stay married unless an unbeliever spouse wishes to leave and enjoy the sexual intimacy and oneness that comes from that union. If you're not married, it'd be best to stay that way. But if you have desires that make that practically impossible, go ahead and marry. There's no, nothing wrong with that. But when you do, know that God's plan is for one woman to marry one man until death separates them, period. These are the answers to the relationship questions that these new Christians were asking, and they're the answers that God has for us today. So homework for the married by the way, singles, you have no homework. Good for you. Uh, Marrieds, the, the homework for you, don't forget, is sometime this week, uh, sit down and have a frank conversation and just ask the question, do you, are you completely and fully satisfied in our sexual relationship? And have a conversation about it. And talk. This is probably the number one topic that married couples avoid and when they aren't satisfied, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Don't invite Satan into your relationship by putting each other back in the position that you were in when you were single. Because when you invite him in, he'll come in. Have a conversation. Talk about how you can both be more completely fulfilled in your relationship, because that's what God desires for you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Lord, I see these Corinthians, and they have such a heart to want to do what's right. They just don't know. They're they're writing Paul, and they're asking questions, because they want to do badly what you want them to do. They want to be who, who you want them to be. God, forgive us for having your word in our hands and not even having the heart of the Corinthians, the desire to do what we know. God, forgive us. Help us to make progress towards Christ-likeness. Help us to live lives that are less selfish and more selfless in every area of life. God, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the wonderful um, way that you bless our lives through it. And I pray that you would help us to talk about things that are difficult, to uh, be real and transparent and, and just um, open to each other and to growing in our relationship with each other 
and also in our relationship with you. Thank you for the way that you have provided this wonderful picture of uh, a man and a woman uh, to Christ in the church. Uh, It helps us so much. Thank you for Jesus and for the forgiveness of our sins. Help us to be more like Jesus every day. In his name we pray, amen.